Sally, got a call from Davis at the IRS. You were right. They bounced your return. Call me. Welcome to 200 a Day, the podcast where we talk about the 70s television detective show, The Rockford Files. I'm Nathan Paletta. And I'm Epidiah Ramshaw. And uh, I guess I want to say welcome back, though yeah. I don't know if that's <laughs> the right thing. For those who have been listening as these in, in order as these shows come out, uh, this is our first recording post my big transnational, transnational? Yeah. Trans-Am. Trans-Am. Trans-Am move. Trans-Am move. My long distance uh, uh, move. So thanks again for bearing with us during the kind of downtime between our last couple of episodes. We may still be on a bit of a one a month, maybe slightly less than that (laughs) schedule going forward, though we're going to try to get a couple recordings done soon and pace them out. Anyway, that's all to say that um, thanks for sticking with us. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are pushing off our answering machine roundup for another recording because I just didn't have time to look at things to get it together for this recording. Um, however, we have been seeing your, uh, feedback and notes and questions and, and everything and, uh, appreciate those coming in and we will be addressing them soon. We've, we've had, we have a good, a good stock of answering machine, um, oh, good. stuff that has come in over the last couple months, um. So even if uh, you're so you're not you're not quite yelling into the void, we do see it uh, and we will address it in our next episode. Hopefully, I feel that the uh, well, I mean, I, man, all right, I've already talked myself out of it in my head. Never mind. <laughs> I, OK, what I was going to say is I feel that like the podcast listeners perspective versus the podcasters perspective is is considerably different because um, people are discovering podcasts all the time. And so they're mm-hmm. they're catching up, right? There's a there's a binge, or you know, so there's not the. Uh, uh, but I guess if the people are in fact asking us questions and whatnot, that there is a there has been a delay there. So I take it all back. <laughs> well, the thing is, we don't we don't get so much feedback, and this is not a please give us. Feedback. I mean, feel free to send us your thoughts. Mm-hmm anytime we're happy to 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 hear them and feel them but we also don't have like a mailbag segment like we're not yeah we don't get so much that we have to have a a episode by episode feedback segment yeah nor do we really want to do that necessarily hence why we kind of round them up for our like little answering machine thing um because because calendar time elapses in you know at the same rate over time when we yeah. take a couple months off we still get a couple things every so often and yeah. that just adds up um, so that we have a good chunk to deal with but yeah so we appreciate all of that um, the other thing I was going to say is that because I have moved I am now in a new recording environment um, and as plus expenses listeners will have heard we we discussed the considerations and and what that what that means uh but basically if this episode sounds different um especially on my end it's because i'm still dialing in my situation for you know where my setup is and and everything um so yeah but if it sounds fine and you don't notice that don't worry about it everything's good (laughs) yeah stop your worrying all of you all of you stop worrying oh yeah so with that preamble out of the way, uh, what episode are we talking about this time, Epi? Well, we're talking about Exit Prentice Car, uh, which is uh, it is in season one, fourth episode of season one, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. 
And uh, I remember now because uh, it's another one that I got right out off the bat out of the DVD case. Nice. It was really easy to pick the very first DVD. And <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, but this is your pick. So yes. uh, why did you make this pick? Yeah, so this episode is completing our Mills Watson Mm -hmm. uh, uh, round. Specifically because, if you'll remember in our last episode, uh, I got confused about which episode was which, and I kept calling this episode a different episode, and I thought we'd finished, but we hadn't. So, in order to alleviate all of that uh, confusion... We are finishing our Mills Watson survey with the final episode that we're addressing, which was the first episode that he was in, um, which is this one, Exit Prentice Car. As, as I'm sure we will run into more and more as we go, this yeah. is in fact completing multiple... Um, yeah, this is a wrap on uh, many many people. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of wraps in this one, which is which is kind of fun because... For us, they're wraps, but in the continuity of the show, this is so early. This is mostly first episodes, right? Yeah, like this, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of fun to look at them with the knowledge of like how the show is going to evolve. But we will mm -hmm. get into that, as we say, when we get into it. Speaking of wraps, this one is a wrap on the director, Alexander Grasshoff. Yeah, I was just clicking on him to see what he's up to. So he also directed the Dexter Crisis, which is the one mm. that I got confused with extra exit Prentice car. So there's just <laughs> almost so much going on in my head. Yeah. Um, so we talked about him a little bit then. This is the first of those two episodes that he's directed, but he directed some of Toma, which was the previous Roy Huggins project that kind of turned into the Rockford Files. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so we talked about him a little bit in our episode 95. Um but looking at his stuff a little bit again, I hadn't noticed the first time that he was uh, he was also a documentary film director. He was nominated for three Oscars for Best Documentary. Let me know what you what you think about this. He had a movie called Young Americans, which did win the 1969 Oscar for Best Documentary. But then that award was rescinded because it was actually released a year earlier than... Oh. Then was eligible. So it was ineligible because it was actually released in 67. So it should have been a 68 entrant, I guess. Scandal. Scandal. So he technically won an Oscar, but then it was taken away. Oh, my God. That sucks. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine being... I mean, I don't know. I Like, these are real people who have real ambitions that, you know, created things. But, like... Who complains <laughs> to make that happen? I guess right, right. I'm who's, asking. Who's the like, narc? Yeah, like who? Who's like? Mm. I mean, who knows? I mean, is the situation that it was submitted under false pretenses? Right. Yeah. Or was it submitted and somehow it just you know got lost in the shuffle or whatever? Uh, who knows? Yeah. Uh, I have not looked into the, this event with any with any detail, but I was like, huh, that sucks. <laughs> <laughs> The writer for this episode is Roy Huggins, uh, as uh, credited as John Thomas James, his usual um, <laughs> pen name. He had a number of pen names. Um, he didn't like to have his name in the credits, I guess, generally. 
it's a story. So the credit and, you know, the situation is it's the story by Huggins and then the teleplay yeah. was by Juanita Bartlett. So he was often the story guy and then someone else would write the, you know, write the script. Mm-hmm. And there's a bit of a write up in the in the Ed Robertson book uh, for this episode about his use of pen names because he had a number of them. And sometimes people didn't know that they were not real people. So he would get like pitches or he would get invitations to do stuff by studios addressed to (laughs) John Thomas James. And he apparently had, I don't know, it sounds like it was a bit of a gag, but he apparently, uh, Universal had a Roy Huggins parking spot. And then they also had a John Thomas James parking spot. (laughs) (laughs) So he had two parking spots at Universal, which I think is very funny. That's good. Um, But yeah, and I would say this one definitely has that season one, some real specific hook for the story that mm-hmm. I associate with a with a with a Roy Huggins um idea. I found out about this thing and now I'm going to write a Rockford Files story around yeah. uh around it. I think that's pretty much it to bring us into the preview montage. Oh, that's what we do. That's right. Mm-hmm. Oh, I did have one other thing that I just wanted to throw out if you uh if you noticed the answering machine message which listeners you heard at the beginning of the episode says that the IRS bounced his return, which <laughs> I think is a very funny concept. <laughs> Did I miss the answering machine message? Listen to it. I think I might've. I think it's funny that the, and I was kind of like, huh, is that even possible? Cause that the, the language is that they bounced his return. So that would be, that would his... be they bounced their check to him. Is yeah. What, that's Right. Which I don't think is possible. Unless what, what's, what's being implied there is... Because sometimes people refer to uh, the forms that you fill out as your mm. return. Sure, sure. Uh, and, and yeah, unless they're saying, oh, yeah, it, uh, you know, it got kicked out of the system because of some... Or your check bounced. Yeah. The, that would be a thing that actually happens. But I, yeah. like, I, I choose to believe that there's some weird scam or something where it's like, oh, yeah, you're supposed <laughs> to get a return. But the check bound, I don't know, can build out a whole other story about that. The IRS owes me this money. Once again, Jim is owed money and he is not he does not receive it. Mm-hmm. All right. Anyway, that's uh, neither here nor there. What is going on in our preview montage? Um, well, there a couple things I noted. There's a nice little preview montage montage joke in the cut where they go from the the word murder to suicide mm-hmm. which becomes a, a, a an important plot point here in the story um there was not much else in it that like there wasn't like a whole lot of car chases or uh we're on the fourth episode so they haven't honed their opening montage <laughs> yeah uh there was one bit in it that i i really liked but it it teases you for something that never comes about Oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. You know the bit where where the 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 cop is like, and bring along that good attorney of yours. You're going to need him. And Jim's like, her. And it's great. And you're thinking, oh, we're going to get Beth, but we do not. But we do get that line, and that's a good line. Yeah, I also uh, was like, oh, and we get a Beth appearance. Spoilers: we do not get to see Beth, unfortunately. We are a 100% listener-supported show. Thanks to our patrons at patreon.com slash 200 a day. In addition to our gratitude, patrons also receive exclusive episode previews and plus expenses, a bonus podcast where we casually chat about media we're enjoying and the things going on in our lives. 
We extend special thanks to our Gumshoe patrons supporting this episode. Join Mitch Hampton to examine all matters aesthetic and what it means to be human at the Journey of an Aesthete podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Dale Norwood wrote a book. Find Trading Freedom, How Trade with China Defined Early America, wherever good books are sold. It's about fast ships, cheap drugs, and American political economy. Published by the University of Chicago Press. Chuck from whatyoureading.com. Paul Townend, who also recommends the podcast Fruit Loops, Serial Killers of Color, at fruitloopspod.com. Shane Liebling, his site rollforyour.party, has all of your online dice rolling needs. Jay Adon, check out his amazing miniature painting skills over at jayadon.com. Pumpkin Jabba Peach Pug, Dave P., Dave Otterson, Kip Holly, and Dale Church. And finally, we can't thank our detective patrons enough for their generous support. Joe Greathead, Michael Zalisco, Eric Antenor, at Antenor on Twitter, Brian Pereira, at Thermoware, Jordan Bockelman, not Brockelman, at Jordan Bockelman, and of course, Richard Haddam, at Richard Haddam. We follow them too, at 200pod. If you're interested in keeping us going for as little as $1 an episode, check out patreon.com slash 200 a day to see if becoming a patron is right for you. So this episode takes place mostly in Bay City, which I'm sure we remember slash recognize from the Girl in the Bay City Boys Club. Uh, yes. I, I did not realize that Bay City is not a real place. <laughs> oh, really? I didn't yeah, know that not either. Being a Californian. Um, we, the, the theory is that the Bay City is a homage to Raymond Chandler because um, that was a, mm. the town run by crooked cops in uh, Farewell, My Lovely. Ah, uh, well... Okay. All right. I did not know that, but, uh, which means all these establishing shots with Bay city, like signs and stuff are all properties, which is kind of fun. Anywho. Uh, so all, all you California residents can mock us for not realizing that Bay city was not, not for real. (laughs) Um, but we start off our episode with Jim pulling up to the Bay city motel and he's poking around. We get our suspenseful music as we see he's, you know, on the track trying to find someone my, my notes are right away i'm like because this is a nice long sequence mm-hmm. of just jim working like there's no yeah yeah this is a yeah early early season early season one we get a lot of like jim doing pi stuff yeah yeah um so yeah he's you know knocking making sure that there's no one around before he tries the door it turns out it's unlocked so he just goes in so we see him scan the space, and uh, sure enough, he finds a body on the floor. Yeah. This is not set up as a suspense moment. I mean, there is kind of like suspenseful music, like it's mm-hmm. a little, you know, what's going on here, but it is not set up as kind of a jump-like. Yeah, it's not like a, a tension. Right, there's it's no just, tension. Yeah. yeah. We're just kind of seeing what he's seeing. Um, he checks the bathroom, and again, we see him doing like very straightforward, but nice to see on screen PI stuff. He's putting the his handkerchief on, on the handle so he doesn't leave prints. He kind of jumps into the bathroom in case there's <laughs> someone hiding behind the door, right? Like that kind of stuff. I, I noted that like now is when the handkerchief, like, because we do see some of the room. He does a little exploring before he finds the body. Uh, and then when he finds the body, he's like, well, you got to get a handkerchief out. Uh, I, if I was in some stranger's hotel room snooping around, I think I would have the handkerchief out already. But mm-hmm. Then again, who who does for prints if there's no body there? Right, I guess. right, right, right. Yeah. yeah, like when does it matter? Once you see that there is a body there, then it matters. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, but it does it does show that you should be carrying a handkerchief with you at all times in case you do come across a body. <laughs> I had that thought, which is that like there was a time where it was much more, every, you know, you just would be carrying a handkerchief all the time. And yeah, once once we just started wearing jeans and T-shirts all the time, there was no. <laughs> yeah, there's no handkerchief pocket. Mm-hmm. Um, he sees a gun underneath the curtains across mm-hmm. uh, the room, which is important later. Um, and I guess we're actually the the preview montage did a good job of setting us up for knowing that this is there's going to be something yeah, that happens yeah. right because we saw in the preview montage him being like you know the gun was 15 feet away. Yeah, you know, we said there's no tension, but it's not. So, it's the music is very sneaky. Mm. Like this is this is snooping music, uh, and that's what all of this is. But there's no, yeah, there's, like you said, there's no shock or surprise. We're we're just watching as he gets to the meat of it, and we want to uh, get there, I guess is what it is. We see Jim uh, pick up the, the gun by with the pencil in the barrel technique. <laughs> yes. Give it a sniff to, or to, to uh, uh, solidify the fact that, yes, it has been used, puts it back where it was, and then we cut directly to Mills Watson. <laughs> <laughs> yes. There's our mills. There's our mills. So he is a sergeant in this Bay City Police Department. Um, we get their names eventually, but basically there's a sergeant and there's a lieutenant, and they're the ones that matter. So I'll probably just be calling them sergeant and lieutenant. Mm-hmm. We have been we, we have sung uh, Mills's praises uh, in our previous coverage of him as a, as a character actor. Mm-hmm. I think we posited that he plays a very different character in each of his appearances, and mm-hmm. I think this 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 tracks. So. I was going to say he's kind of a Becker-type police sergeant. Um, the Ed Robertson book mentions that both Mills Watson and the guy who plays the lieutenant that we'll meet soon, uh, Warren Kemmerling, were mm-hmm. both in contention for the role of Becker. Oh, really? That's... <laughs> I, I I think the casting choice was the right one. Oh, However, yeah, yeah. just envisioning the Mills Watson as Becker throughout this entire th- uh, show is that's an alternate reality that I wouldn't mind visiting. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, he's a, a long suffering police sergeant who has to deal with the P.I. And uh, that's great. He's exactly what you want in that role. Mm-hmm. So Jim has come to the police because he so he can't just say, hey, I found a dead body. Right. That doesn't look good for him. So he is uh, saying, hey, I was hired. I mean, he kind of implies like I was doing a favor. And then it comes out, yes, I'm a PI. I was hired to find this woman's husband, tracked him to this motel. There was no answer. Uh, She's been calling him. There's been no answer. She's worried about him. Mm -hmm. You're the cops. Can you go take a look? And so he has to talk this sergeant, this reluctant sergeant, into um, going and, and investigating this hotel room without any actual like evidence or you know yeah yeah he's he he definitely you feel the like i need to give them as much as i can to get without incriminating myself right to get them to overcome the inertia of not doing this right (laughs) like like there's a there's a there's that has a nice tension to it we get some good money in this scene because uh they talk about the license you know, we don't get very many uh, 
private investigators here in Bay City. A couple of bucks for a piece of paper. They don't bite you nothing here. It's 275 and 50 bucks the last day of May of every even-numbered year. Yeah, that was great. It was beautiful. But he, he then escalates to saying, well, Mrs. Carr is going to make a big stink. She's going to call the police chief. Mm-hmm. You won't believe what she did when she got a parking ticket, you know. <laughs> uh, so finally, he's like, OK, fine, I'll take a look. And then he has this great line on the way out of the scene. Just how much money are you getting paid for us doing your job for you? Oh, well, uh, the rates are pretty much standardized. How much? Well, it's. 200 a day plus expenses. But that's not day in and day out. I mean, there's actual days I'm weeks I'm standing in the unemployment line. Oh. <laughs> it's like, it sounds like I make more money than you do, but I promise you I do not. <laughs> uh, the thing about this that will, will kind of come out as we go a little bit further, but like, um, because Jim has to lie about his involvement in the crime scene, right? Uh, you know, he has to not let on that he broke in or, or went in. It wasn't a what? It's probably still a break in if the door was just open. I mean, he even says like, "I can't go in there. That would be breaking and entering." Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So he's lying about that. So, so I, I'm in my head. I'm like, okay, so he's working for a client, but he's presenting himself as her friend, and he's saying that she's ill. These feel to me at this point like lies he's telling to situate himself so that he needs the cops to do the thing but they can't talk to her uh that turn out to not be lies (laughs) they turn out to be well one of them turns out to be a lie she's telling jim but as far as jim knows these turn out to be truth Mm -hmm. and there's uh a bunch happening in these scenes where it's like who's lying here what's going on uh which i like we go to the uh Presumably the Bay City police station. Pretty sure it's the same set as the yeah, yeah. police station that we usually see. But I think it's just, but I think it's shot from the opposite angle. Ah, Because I feel like he's usually like in the hall on the right. And this time he's in the hall on the left. And like yeah. we are shooting from behind the desk in the room instead of shooting from the other side of the, I mean, I could be making that up, but it's, uh, I had this sense of like, well, that's definitely the police set, but I think they're just shooting it differently. So that, (laughs) cause it's a different, I don't know. Uh, I like the uh, visual indicators of the passage of time being like a cup and a half of coffee Mm -hmm. and several cigarettes later. Yeah. Cause he's got like one cup of coffee that he's drinking from another just sitting there mm-hmm. that he's clearly finished and like an ashtray. And yeah. Yeah. He's clearly been there for a while. And then he finally gets summoned into the Lieutenant's um, office. So this is a accidental rap on Warren Kemmerling. As oh, well. as he was also in Pastoria prime pick, which is going Way back for us now. Yeah, I assume I assume he was one of the crooked cops in in Pastoria, <laughs> but he's another very recognizable character actor. He was in uh, he was in Close Encounters. Uh, he was in Godzilla nineteen seventy five. Nineteen eighty five. Oh, I'm sorry, Godzilla nineteen eighty five. I can't <laughs> read. He's pl- he's played cops in every show you've ever <laughs> you've yes. ever seen. I mean, he goes back. He was a he was a bonanza guy. He was a gunsmoke guy. There, there's a picture of him. Uh, his his profile picture on IMDb. I'm like, 
I really recognize this guy. Where do I recognize him from? And when I click on it, it's from uh, Pastoria Prime. <laughs> nice. Anyway, he's he is great here as a uh, no nonsense lieutenant with no no time for Rockford. Mm-hmm. Um, so here, Jim is still playing out the string, right? Of like, I need you to tell me what happened because I don't know what happened, right? Uh, so the lieutenant asks him the connection to Prentice Carr. Mm-hmm. You know, he's he's friends of friend of the family, friends with Mrs. Mrs. Carr. Uh, so she's the one who hired you, and he's like, okay, fine, I was hired. Um, yeah, and and the lieutenant tells him that they haven't been able to reach her either to tell her that her husband is dead. He's like, what happened? And they're like, suicide. And then <laughs> Jim is truly shocked because clearly yeah. that is not what he's expecting to hear. I think his his shock reads like he's very surprised. And so the, ser- <laughs> so the sergeant just asks, you have some reason to think it wasn't suicide? <laughs> and so there's really good blocking here where they, the two of them go from kind of standing in front of Jim to kind of surrounding him so that they're yeah. on either side <laughs> of him while he, while he has to play off his, his surprise. But they go back and forth saying that the door was locked. There was no forced entry. There was no sign of struggle. He had a gun in his hand and powder burns on his belly. Mm-hmm. Um, Jim really can't argue with that though. He goes, Oh, come on. Who kills him? You know, like who commits suicide by shooting himself in the, in the, in the stomach. And the Lieutenant goes, Prentice Carr. <laughs> yes. <laughs> this is a good, I love that. This is a very good sticky situation for Jim, right? Like he mm-hmm. can't admit that he knows this is wrong. So this is the other part of this, um, where the lies kind of pile up because uh, now I am, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause he said she was home with the flu, which is why she couldn't come herself because yeah. she lives, lives 45 minutes away or whatever. And then they can't reach her. So if she's home with the flu, shouldn't she be answering the phone? And he's like, well, I don't know where she is. And then, and then also with these cops, they're describing a crime scene that is not what Jim and we saw. Right. 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 So are they like at this point now it's like, this is a good Rockford Files, like, you're in it, Jim. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're going to have to figure out, you know, no matter no matter what happens, even if you get fired from the case or whatever, you're going to have to figure out what's going on. Like, you, you're, you're stuck. Now you got to sort this out. Yeah, I really I really appreciated how it's like it's a really elegant narrative maneuver. Mm-hmm. Of, and I'm sure it's happened in other episodes, too. But this is kind of like the hook here, which is like where he knows that there's something different but he can't admit it to the cops right and yeah yeah and as you say getting him stuck in just so quickly and efficiently is like a yeah. real hallmark i think of this um the, the early era of of the show we go to janet carr pouring a drink and telling jim that she doesn't know who prentice was meeting uh so we get our first jim and janet scene of which mm-hmm. there will be there will be many he's suspicious of her so okay we we kind of get their yeah. backstory over the course of a couple of scenes but uh they have a relationship from prior to her marrying this guy prentice um and then he's been kind of like a friend of the family since they got married but they have he hasn't actually seen her for you know seen them for you know since they got married so we start off here with establishing that she doesn't know that he that prentice is dead because mm-hmm. she hasn't gotten any of these messages or phone calls or whatever from him or from the cops uh, so he asks her again what she knows about who he was meeting. She doesn't really know who it was, just said he was disturbed and, and being weird about it, which is why she was worried about him. He asks where she was. She has this whole thing about how she went out to the drugstore to get something to read. <laughs> she goes through the whole magazine rack, which is why she was gone. He's like, you you know, you were gone for at least two hours that I know mm-hmm. of. 
it's funny because she says, I, I went through the whole magazine rack. You know that I do that. And he's kind of like, yeah. yeah, you do do that. <laughs> but uh, this is good because this establishes that he's not lying about their friendship, which is good. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that as far as he knew, she did have the flu. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah, that is a, a weird, like, uh, I wrote that down too. I always go through the magazine rack. Do you remember that? Yeah. It's a nice little way to establish that, like, yes, they do have an outside, like, a prior relationship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's when he finally breaks the news to her that Prentice is dead. He has been murdered. Um, and he is now suspicious of her. Yes. In fact, saying, like, I haven't seen you in four years. I don't know how your marriage has been going. <laughs> he needs to know where she was because the minute that he tells the cops it was a murder, because he saw it differently, right? Mm-hmm. Now she becomes a suspect because he was there on her, you know, first of all, she's, you know, suspicion will o- always falls on the, on the, you know, on the partner, uh, but also because she hired him, et cetera. Yeah. The timing is very suspicious. Right. The timing is suspicious. But she says that if he doesn't tell the cops, she will. So like, she does want to know, yeah. you know, who killed, who killed Prentice. We end the scene with a uh, back and forth where she asks him to stay because she doesn't want to be alone tonight. Significant pause. I can make up the guest room. And mm-hmm. Tim says that the cops would not understand. And uh, she better get rid of those travel folders that are all over the place because they wouldn't understand that either. <laughs> there's, a, there's a good enigmatic look that Jim gives her when yeah. she offers the room. Like it's, uh, I mean, I read it as both temptation, but also like, you know that that's not smart, right? right. Like, 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 you know, like, mm-hmm. like, come on now. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so I think we get a good bundle of mystery for us as audience here, too. Mm-hmm. We get the sense that she has lied to Jim, but we're not quite sure why or about what. He's suspicious of her, but yeah. the motive is very unclear. And also, if she did it, why would she? Because if she did it and they're like, it's a suicide, she can just be like, oh, no, he committed suicide and it's over. Right. Yeah. So her insisting that he go to the cops with what he saw implies that she didn't do it, at least to me. Yeah. And there's this angle that still fits all the clues or all the clues isn't the right word, but still fits all the uh, there's a puzzle piece that still fits here, which could be he's being framed for it. And I think that that's like a large part of why he won't spend the night or, you know, like he's not going to do things that are going to get him in the in the frame. Well, I feel like he also won't spend the night because he knows. I mean, this is giving us our first hint, and then it is later confirmed that they were together yeah. at some point before she got married. So, like, he knows how she is, I guess, and he's like, "I'm not like I'm not interested in like comforting you tonight." Yeah, yeah. Both it looks bad, and I think he's kind of like, "I don't trust you right now." Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So there's a lot wrapped up in that. We go to another office at the the police station where we have a. Uh, it's like, there's another higher ranking cop here. <laughs> um, in the credits, he's the, uh, police chief. We, as, we have our establishing shot with him summoning in the lieutenant and the sergeant and saying that Rockford has accused them with serious charges, uh, tampering with evidence in a capital crime, etc. And Jim's like, look, I just laid out the facts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you are coming to your own conclusions. And then we get the recap. They both, both sides recap what they saw. Yeah. Um, and, and the cops are like, the door was locked. And Jim's like, the door is open. 
Mm-hmm. So he was lying. You know, the chair was overturned. There were no signs of struggle. So, you know, point by point, they're, they're contradictory accounts. And then we kind of get to a point where Jim's like, look, I just want to lay this before an unbiased witness. <laughs> and the chief says, oh, I'm biased. Yeah. <laughs> That was a very good line. Uh, he's on the cop's side, of course. These are good men and they're good cops. And he's never seen Jim before. Jim wants to know why he would come here with a story like that if it wasn't true. Fair point. But the chief has a very, I don't know, this feels very like, this feels like something that would happen to me. Yeah, yeah. We can get an investigation going, but it's going to be bad for morale, bad for public confidence. And we're just going to end up right back here. You know, your word against theirs. And who am I going to believe? Yeah. There's a bit more banter um, ending with uh, telling Jim that Prentice Carr was a suicide, and the next time he needs a change, and the next time he needs a change of scenery, not to come to Bay City. Uh, we then go to Jim driving and immediately getting pulled over by our two <laughs> two friends, the cops, and uh, there is some tough guy banter of between Jim and the lieutenant, with Jim kind of running his mouth and uh, them warning him yeah, off. Yeah, he's a little bit of a smartass, but um, I. At first, I was I thought he might be trying to wind them up for a reason, like because mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know he's he's like yeah usually you cops like I I didn't think you'd be he didn't say it this way but like I didn't think you'd be dumb enough to follow me in a squad car right like, right you know right, like, yeah. <laughs> and it's hard to, like it's hard to tell what Jim's angle is uh, other than like maybe it's not an angle maybe Jim's just had enough of this I think he's just annoyed yeah uh, which I think is probably the the correct read at this. At this point, um, they tell him directly to stay out of Bay City, and he says that he uh, he can't leave if they're they keep leaning on him. Yes, <laughs> and Lieutenant <laughs> says that we're not leaning on you, Rutherford. Leaning means that if you're stupid enough to come back here and we pull you over for a traffic violation, you reach in for your ID. We think you're going for a gun, but it's all over and too late when we find out we were wrong. Straight up murder threat. Right, right. And is too real. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, they basically, uh, you know, give him, yeah, straight up threaten, threaten to, to murder him if he <laughs> keeps poking around in Bay City and tell him to get out of here. So at the end of the last scene, I was kind of like, you know, okay, there's, there's clearly a third party involved, you know, that something happened, you know, to rearrange the scene. Yeah, yeah. And then at the end of this scene, I'm kind of like, or maybe they did it. <laughs> yeah, no, this is this is definitely one of the like uh, contentions as you're watching it. Is is okay? One of the things I like about the writing on this. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of really good dialogue. This is which makes sense. We got um, Juanita Bartlett at the helm here. Mm. Um, but one of the things I, I like about this is all of the suspicion between um, Jim and Janet helps put us as the viewers on unsteady ground when it comes to these cops. Mm-hmm. So we don't know if these cops are, uh, well, we know that these cops are, are jerks, right? We know that they're willing to, to do extra legal stuff. We just don't know if that that's what they're doing here. Right. Or no, we know that they're doing it in this moment by threatening Jim, but we don't know if that's like, if they're hapless or not in this case. Yeah. We, we don't know if they are a responsible party in the murder. Yeah. Yeah. Or involved in some way or whether Jim has just gotten so under their skin by going to the chief and implying that they are lying. Right. That's kind of the crux of why they're mad. Do they feel that they're the injured party or are they just trying to 
Or are they protecting something? But, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And uh, the, the other stuff that's indirectly related to this, like the stuff between Jim and Jen, helps lay the ground for that a little bit because it helps make everything a little shaky, and I like that. Well, speaking of Jen and Jim and Janet, we go to Janet practicing tennis. Uh, she has a, a tennis machine that <laughs> Prentice bought for her. He reports back that Bay City ran him out of town, and it's going to, as far as they're concern, concerned, it's going to stay a suicide. But there's some... I, I noted it as coded banter here mm-hmm. about the tennis machine because she says she says that uh, you know tennis it's the kind of game where you have to you have to stay and practice every day or you're gonna lose mm-hmm. your, lose your game or something like that and he says oh yeah it would be a real shame if you lost your backhand and she yeah. <laughs> gives him this look getting from this that he finds it inappropriate that she's like well my husband's dead I'm gonna go practice tennis yep just gonna go hang out in the Enjoy this wonderful day outside. They, you know, walk, walk together um, back to the club or whatever. And Janet says that she's not going to pretend to have emotions she doesn't feel. Mm-hmm. She loved Prentice even after it was clear that he didn't love her. And uh, I think she has a good line. Uh, How many tears do you think it takes to break up a marriage? Yeah. And that they ended up with an arrangement. Uh, mm-hmm. And Jim says, uh, no love, no hard feelings, huh? That's right. <laughs> so we're getting the story of like explaining why she doesn't seem to be more broken up or whatever. You know, right. Kind of yeah. Like, you know, the, 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 the love has gone. That doesn't mean I wasn't concerned about him and mm-hmm. I don't want to know who killed him. But like, as she says, I'm not going to pretend to feel something I don't feel. Yeah. She's not at this point. She's not off the hook with Jim. Like Jim doesn't fully trust her. Mm-hmm. Uh, but me as an audience mm-hmm. member, uh, I'm, I do, <laughs> which is weird. Like I, at this point, I'm like, okay, um, we have a very good explanation for why she's not treating this with the gravity that we would expect. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, so she's got, she's, she's behaving in a way that appears suspicious to everyone. Uh, but it makes sense if she's like, like, well, I don't know if it makes sense, makes sense. Because if anyone mm-hmm. in your life got murdered, you'd be a little, you know, tripped out. But it makes murder mystery person yeah. make sense. Yeah, yeah. There's also this great thing where she's like, you know, to Jim, I told you the truth. And he's like, you didn't even tell me a good lie. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, that was good. Uh, you should have picked somewhere where they don't know you. You are not the <laughs> drugstore. Um, and he keeps pushing her on like, okay, where were you? I need to know where you were. She, they have some back and forth. And she finally admits, you know, I was out. I was out with a man. Mm-hmm. Like, that's not good enough. I need a name. And she gives him the name Sterling Parker. <laughs> her story is that she was considering having an affair with this guy, but changed her mind. And he says, what changed your mind? Two hours in the front seat of a sports car. <laughs> I I kind of thought there was going to be follow up, like, like something to explain that at some point. But I don't know. It's just the line. Like, like I spent some time with him and I was like, no, never mind. <laughs> yeah. I, my guess is, um, okay, so cards on the table, this person is invented, but the situation isn't, right? The, right. the name is invented. But the, my, my guess is that um, two hours in the front seat of a sports car would be uh, the same as, like, um, what made you change your mind? Checking into a seedy motel. Like, mm. the fact that they can't go anywhere. She, you know, like, they, mm. it has to be a secret, so. Oh, okay, yeah. You know, instead of like going to the movies or having a dinner out or whatever, 
she had to spend the whole time in the front seat of this sports car because they would be seen. Maybe? Something like I don't that. know. Because mm-hmm. we cut to Jim's car right after <laughs> that. So then maybe that's a comment about Jim. Like maybe you sports car guys are all... <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. It's it's not particularly important. Just it, I I noted it as like, huh, I wonder what that means. And then. No, no. I Same here. I wrote it down. And I'm like, in fact, I wrote down two hours of the front seat of a sports car. What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> well, we go to not just Jim's car, but Jim's trailer where he is eating Oreos and drinking his glass of milk. Mm-hmm. And I think doing some accounting. Yeah, yeah, I think so. <laughs> he has like some slips of paper and like what looks like a little adding machine or something. So you love to see the little insight into his general evening. Have some yeah. Oreos, do some <laughs> counting. You got to reward yourself for the hard work, right? Mm-hmm. Well, we love to see it. Yeah. You're like, I eat Oreos, but only while I'm doing the books. That way I, I have an incentive to do the books. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a knock on the door and it's it's Janet come by to... Resolve this with Jim before mm-hmm. she goes to Tahiti. <laughs> Again, suspicious. <laughs> and he says, you're not making a great picture of widowhood. Yeah. I think the line is, and your attitude makes you seem guilty as hell. Yes. <laughs> so this is kind of weird. I mean, the scene is fine. I, w- I was having a hard try- time tracking what the what her motivation here was. Mm-hmm. Because she comes in, she says she wants to settle this with Jim before she goes to Tahiti. So I'm like, okay, so she she feels some kind of guilt or something. Like, she wants to part on good terms. Yeah. But then she starts accusing Jim. Or not accusing, but threatening Jim. Says if the cops change their mind about it being a suicide, you look like a good suspect. We had a prior relationship, and it's only our Mm -hmm. word that it ended when I got married. You were in the room. Um, You look good for it. But I wouldn't do that. (laughs) and jim's got a good retort here where he's like sandbagging never works with me it just makes me unfriendly Mm -hmm. so that's a good good response to that we don't get uh that later on the whole series is about people sandbagging right right. so (laughs) we know that that's the case but yeah he's like uh well it doesn't not make him unfriendly it doesn't mean it doesn't work yeah (laughs) (laughs) but she has i mean so so plot wise she she has something else to 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 give him that might point him in another direction. Um, and it's a receipt that she found in his, in Prentice's stuff from a, la- a liquor store in Bay city. Then he, he's like, okay, well I'm, I'm going to need to borrow your car because the cops mm-hmm. don't want me in Bay city. So I can't take my car again. Um, and then I guess this is the motivation at the end here. Jim, I know I have to get used to being alone eventually, but not yet. I don't have a guest room. I do. And we have a hard cut to a big office building. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So we don't know for sure what happened there, but there's clear implications. We can guess. So I guess, yeah, that goes back to, uh, okay, so that is the motivation for her going over. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. And all the other stuff was kind of preamble. Um, In that conversation, they also mentioned like, was he still working for that insurance company? Yeah. So mm-hmm. this office building that we cut to is this insurance company that Prentice worked for. And he's talking to Prentice's boss, whose name is uh, Saunders. Um, and Wallace Rooney, another good face. Lots of good faces. Yeah, it's a good face episode. <laughs> 
So Prentice was an ideal employee. He started with the firm and grew with it. Uh, mm-hmm. He was the controller, in fact, which is, you know, a big, big, important job. And he was about to be promoted to executive vice president. Jim <laughs> just was like, OK, thanks, <laughs> which is good. Like, don't you want to know more? Well, what does he say? He says that something about the model employee or too good to be true or something like that. Yeah. There's not too much you can learn about someone who's too, too good to be true. Or too- yeah, yeah, that's what it was. Yeah, yeah. He's like, well, he's, he was a practical guy, phlegmatic, which I like. It's a good <laughs> SAT vocab work. And doesn't seem like the kind of guy to commit suicide, right? Mm-hmm. Saunders says, well, I don't understand it, but I believe it. Yeah. All right, let's take a little pause in the action here so that we can all sit back and catch our breaths. And Epi and I can let you know where you can find us elsewhere on the internet. Because as it turns out, we do do other things then talk about the Rockford Files from time to time. Epi, where can our fine listeners find you and your work? You can find my work at www.worldswithoutmaster.com. That's worlds, plural, master, singular. Or at digathousandholes.com, with the thousand being numeral 1000. I like complex URLs. <laughs> you can also find me on Twitter at Epidiah, E-P-I-D-I-A-H. Where can we find you, Nathan? The hub for all of my stuff, from games to zines to podcasts, is ndpdesign.com. I recently started a new podcast called Appendix NDP, which is a solo show where I talk about various topics in games and publishing. So I will plug that for listeners of podcasts. You can also find me on Twitter at ndpaoletta, P-A-O-L-E-T-T-A. And on Instagram at the same handle, though I probably will only have pictures of my dog. So, you know, that may be a plus. (laughs) (laughs) Now we return to the adventures of Jimbo Rockfish on 200 a Day. We now have a good, solid Jim maneuver. Oh, yeah. Where he calls the liquor store. He has this receipt for liquor store and it has uh, it's like a charge account. And so it has Mm -hmm. its account number on it. So he's in the phone booth, in the parking lot of the liquor store, calls, says, this is P car. I need, I think he says like your nicest bottle of scotch and a six pack of soda right away. <laughs> we just hear his end, but he's like, what are you new? Okay. Here's the account number. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just the assuming, you know, assuming that role is just the way he says like, what are you new here? Yeah. Like, yeah. Very funny to me. He, he definitely puts on the, uh, I'm, I'm in a hurry. It's a classic of uh, a gym con is to like, but here, instead of playing the working class stiff, just trying to get a job done, he's the, and this will inconvenience me, the rich man whose <laughs> name is Prentice. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fine. I will give you the account number since yeah. you don't recognize my name. This <laughs> is very good. And then he follows the delivery car oh, when, so when it departs. Uh, Cause he says to the usual address. Yeah, yeah. So he follows the car to the usual address. When uh, there's no answer to the doorbell, he runs. He gets out of his car and runs over. He's like, "Oh, you beat me here, you know." Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's all very, very slick, very good. Gives the guy what seemed to me there's a there's a moment where you kind of see the face of the bill, like he gives the guy. Oh a tip. yeah. And I was like, that looks like it's a larger denomination than I would have expected, but <laughs> I didn't. I didn't check. I mean, like he's playing a rich man, right? And also, uh, there's so the exchange is he hands him money, and the kid is like, "No, that's supposed to be a charge." Hmm. And he says, 
that's a tip, son. You keep it. So there's a little bit of like, did Jim forget he charged it? So like, is he offering him the money for all the alcohol? Oh. <laughs> and then, and then is is covering for it. No, I think he's just giving a tip so that the so that the the, the guy won't question. Won't. Yeah, yeah. Looking out for the the working man. Yep. I mean, it's possible that he would expect a tip, and if he didn't get one, that would be suspicious. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. But no one turns down a tip, right? So yeah. Yes. <laughs> so then he he just takes out the house. Uh, we get the passage of time. It's night. Um, we see a white sports car arrive with the top down. And a blonde woman gets out. She goes into the house. Jim remains staking out the house. Mm -hmm. We go to him asleep in the front seat. And then we see the shadow (laughs) of something passing over his face. And it's like, well, I think I can guess what's about to happen. Yeah. And sure enough, our friends, the sergeant and the lieutenant, have have, have found him and are saying, what are you doing in Bay City? The, The smile when he's caught is great. Like, there's just something like, oh, of course it's you guys. And his line, which is, this isn't Bay City, it's Oak Grove. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like, my directions couldn't be that far off. So this time, our friends, our our friends, these cops, Mm -hmm. um, are not having any of Jim's guff. They frisk him, start kind of roughing him up keep demanding, you know, why are you back here, you know, et cetera. And this is great because Jim hits his limit, right? Yeah. He's, he's like, okay, you, you guys have messed with me enough. Gets back in the lieutenant's face, says, I don't need to tell you anything. There's no law that says I can't be in Bay City. Mm-hmm. You're like, he does his, you know, appeal to the legal system yeah. or whatever. And they're like, we looked you up. You're, you're an ex-con. The... Uh, again, I think early season really hits this point in a lot, a lot more of the episodes about how you know Jim was a was a con, but then he's like, if yeah. you kept reading the report, you see that I have a full pardon. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not on parole. Like, because the implication is, you know, you're an ex-con, we can do whatever we want to you, right? It's like, no, I got a full pardon. I'm not on parole. Mm-hmm. There's, you can't keep me out of Bay City, etc. And that I don't have to tell you anything. Good banter, good banter, but uh, it kind of ends with another ultimatum to stay out of Bay City. <laughs> so this is a good, like, final act. Like, this is a rule of threes for drama, right? We've kind mm-hmm. of had three scenes of these two guys yelling at Jim, and they've been slightly different each time, but I'm glad this is the last one because it's starting right. to get a little repetitive. <laughs> Um, I think we, we get the point. These guys don't like Jim and don't want him in Bay City. The only thing here that I was, you know, I'm kind of left with questioning as as an audience member at this point is like, like, was it just chance that they saw him or at the, are they at this specific house because they're involved with whatever is going on? And so is this woman that Jim has tracked down, right? Yeah. Like, did did a neighbor call the police and say there's a stranger sitting in a car mm-hmm. and they just, they're like, well, that might be a detective that we know. So let's go check <laughs> it out. Or did they, you know, are they staking out the same house? Are they, yeah. Right. I do think it's a little funny. It doesn't matter and it doesn't really, it didn't, I didn't notice in the moment. But here also, I think what lends it feeling more suspicious is like, it's these two guys, like a lieutenant and a sergeant. It's not like they're out on patrol. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they, they wouldn't just be driving by. I don't think we ever get anything about why they're there now. It sounds like mm-hmm. maybe they're just driving by or maybe, yeah, maybe mm-hmm. there was a phone call and they're like, we know who that is. Yeah. I don't think this is, this part is actually resolved. Now that I think about it. 
it, it disappeared from my consciousness mm. shortly after. Yeah, it doesn't really matter. Um, we go to the John Reed Clinic where Jim is walking around and we see kids and adults talking to each other in sign language. So mm-hmm. it's, you know, some kind of deaf academy or something. Uh, and Jim finds Janet and then kind of walks by and she follows him and asks, how did you find me? It's like, I'm a detective, <laughs> remember? <laughs> this preamble is to establish that she does this volunteering at this clinic. Yeah. He says that there was, he checked up with the name that she gave him about the man that she was seeing that night. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't seem to exist. So mm-hmm. try again. And she says that, well, the situation, I think, like you said, the situation is real, but that name was, was fake. The real name yeah. is Harry Fielding. He's, he's married and has two kids. And that's why I didn't tell you. He's like, okay, this one better check out. She's like, it'll check out. Um, the liquor store tip paid off. She, he, uh, uh, tracked it back to this woman, Nancy Hellman. Now he has two good prospects for the murder. This woman, Nancy and Janet. Um, and we kind of get back into the their the nature of their kind of relationship and how he just like can't get over the suspicion of her, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, he wants to believe her and believe in her like in her good works, right? She's volunteering at this clinic, etc. But he also sees that she wants to spend all the money that she's got, you know, inherited from Prentice since he died and run off to Tahiti. And he can't help wondering why that is. We have a good ending exchange of. I'll bet your grandfather was a preacher. As a matter of fact, he was a horse thief. <laughs> I don't know why, but that is uh, that's a contender for uh, Rockfordishness mm-hmm. for me. There's mm-hmm. just something about like the the sort of the colloquialism of "I bet your grandfather was a preacher," saying like uh, you know none of us are, have our noses clean or whatever, and then of course Jim's retort. Is like I, I believe that that uh, Jim's grandfather was a horse thief. Like, and there's mm-hmm. uh, just something. I don't. Know, there's just something about it that just is very Rockford Files to me. I'd have to. I'd, I'd have to. You know, establish some continuity. But I like to believe, or some timeline ness. But I like to believe that this establishes Jim Rockford's grandfather as a Maverick character. Oh yeah. Oh, it's possible, right? Like. Uh, how will we assume that Rocky is, I mean, he's retired. He's tired in his 70s, 60s, 70s. So Rocky would have been born around the turn of the century. So that seems about right. Seems plausible. Yeah, that's plausible. That's great. The headcanon established. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Jim has more business in Bay City, so he needs another car. And this is another good (laughs) Rockfordishness segment. (laughs) He's borrowing a car from from the security uh, security guard at the club, um, who he apparently knows because of why not? Yeah, and, and it's this real beater of a white station wagon. And the guy says, "Just when you get to a when you get to a stoplight, put it in neutral and just give it a little gas. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> keep it running. Just, just keep, keep it, it running. running." We go back to this woman Nancy's house. Jim is staked out again, and here he is. Taking some bites out of a hamburger. <laughs> and then he sees her come out to get in her car. He wraps up the hamburger, puts away the half-eaten hamburger to follow her. This becomes important again. Um, he follows her out to this long pier. There's like pan flutes in the soundtrack at this point, which is a, a, an interesting choice. I just wanted to like note that there's been some fun music in this. Yeah, there's some pamphlets and then some other 
in some other stretches there's some like bongos or something yeah like, there's yeah. some interesting musical uh instrument choices in the, in this particular score oh yes actually the bongos are involved in uh, i think the centerpiece of this which we haven't gotten to right, yet right. but maybe my very favorite uh, <laughs> but we'll, we'll get to it we'll yeah get to it. um so he falls around the pier and then he stops halfway leans against the railing and continues eating his burger just like <laughs> just someone eating his lunch <clears throat> just enjoying just pier, enjoying yeah. it uh but he sees her go meet with the saunders the the boss who's fishing and he mm-hmm. hands her a, an envelope which looks like it's full of money it's a it's clearly a payoff of something. It's sort, clearly a payoff. Yeah. And then the last third of his burger goes back in the bag to <laughs> finish to 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 follow her back to her car at which point we see a shirtless goon with a windbreaker. Yeah, <laughs> shirtless windbreaker goon. Yeah. My uh SWG. My notes I created a macro so I could write shirtless dude in a jacket over and mm-hmm. over and over again. Uh-huh. Does he does he have a name? He 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 does. Uh, is he Terry? Yeah, I think he's Terry. This is in fact a uh, uh, what do we call it? An accidental rap. Accidental rap. Uh huh. On on William Jordan. His first, our third episode mm-hmm. of the Rockford Files that he's <laughs> in, and one reason he seems fairly familiar, I think is that he is uh, Andrew Dolan in the Becker Connection. Right. He's a crooked cop in in that one. So he gets a, a lot of screen time in that one. Yeah. Uh, he was also in the Italian bird fiasco, um, I assume as a goon. Mm-hmm. He's got the physique for it. He does have. He has a very good goonish physique. It's it's a it's a shame that they hid it in the police uniform in uh, the Becker they Connection. just left his shirt un, unbuttoned and... <laughs> mm-hmm. this is a good look Th- this look for him uh is very distinctive like we could well it's a beach bum distinctive right mm-hmm. like it's it, uh in a little bit we're going to see him in a picture yeah dressed exactly the same way so that we know it's him it's so funny um yeah so we see him peel off and follow Jim. Yeah. And then we see him get in a blue Mustang and he follows the white station wagon, which is following the, I think it's yellow, the yellow convertible. Yeah. Um, our, our friend who's filled out many of the cars on the 200 a day files files, uh, apparently either skipped or did not see this episode. I, I was not able to get any more insight into the cars. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of cars in the episode, but, but yeah, shout out to, uh, whichever of our listeners has filled in so much of the car stuff because yeah. I keep on forgetting to reference it, but it's all good. We have kind of action music as we follow this caravan back to Nancy's house. The camera follows the Mustang as it follows Jim in the white station wagon. Yeah. Jim sees that he's being followed, pulls to a stop like crosswise across the uh, a street to force him to stop and then he tries to confront the goon and he just turns around, not a J turn, just a yeah. standard three point turn. Um, while Jim is kind of like pounding on his, on his, wind, uh, on his, on the hood of the car, which is kind of funny. And then it speeds off and Jim runs back to the station wagon, but he can't get it started because he mm-hmm. didn't leave it in neutral. <laughs> it's good. This episode has a lot of um, good moment long stretches of just visual storytelling right mm-hmm. like there's a lot of good ones where it's not jim talking to anyone or explaining 
the mystery, but you're getting the gist of everything that's happening and the context just from like uh, just well established shots and and like there's that whole thing. There's, he doesn't talk to him at all. Like mm-hmm. there's no there's no exchange there, but we know precisely like he's following Jim. We can even kind of guess it to why he's following mm-hmm. Jim, but it's still just guessing. But right. yeah, the open question is: Is this someone who is following? Jim because Jim is getting involved with something right. or is this someone who's like following this woman, Nancy, and then picks up Jim because Jim started following Nancy, right? Like those are two slightly different yeah. circumstances. When we first see him, I think, Oh, this guy is sees Jim following a woman and is going to conf- going to be a good Samaritan and confront mm-hmm. Jim about that. And that's, all his whole purpose in the story is to provide a reason for why Jim can't follow her to the next sure. stage mm-hmm. or something like that. The fact that he got in the car and started to follow Jim, I'm suddenly going, "Whoa, he's a new. This is a new player." Right, right, right. Yeah. Does, does he work for Saunders? Mm-hmm. Is that what's happening? If he doesn't work for Saunders, does he know? Uh, I can't think of her name now. Yeah. The the woman that we're following, Nancy. Um, Nancy. Uh, or are we? You know, like what? Yeah, what role does this new player have? Yeah. yeah. No, it's good. It's a good, like, interjection of... The the, the pace of this episode is really good. Every There's, like... Uh, sometimes we'll call an episode a romp where it's kind of more, like, fun. This isn't really a romp episode. No. But the energy of it is very... The pacing's very, very good. You're just kind of, like... Each beat just really pulls you along. And it gives you something new, new to consider at all the right places. Yeah. Um, you know? So now we have new... Now it's, like, the cop stuff... We're kind of done with the cop stuff. Now we have this mm-hmm. new player and this woman, Nancy, and we're going to see how this plays out, right? So uh, Janet is waiting for Jim in a parking lot. Um, he wants her to return this car the, <laughs> back to the club uh, and wonders where Rocky is. So we've established we're waiting for Rocky, which mm-hmm. makes which reminds me that at some point we might see Beth. I'm very excited about that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he does tell Janet that she's not a suspect anymore, not after a long and awkward conversation with Harry Fielding. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but now he's on to something. He's on to, to you know, he, he's on to something now. He thinks that this woman, Nancy. So when I, you know, just in the scene, I was like, oh, Saunders and Nancy are in something together and he's paying her off yeah. like he's paying her to do something or something but but jim's read is that she's blackmailing mm-hmm. saunders my note is the same i'm like oh jim thinks it's blackmail like it, i i wasn't thinking that either i was thinking she was being paid off for something yeah which again is a kind of a distinction without really a difference i suppose but yeah <laughs> <laughs> but jim's read so that we know what is going on <laughs> right yeah. is that it's blackmail rocky arrives yeah let's talk about this <laughs> we we ha- we have watched one of the episodes before this i think right yeah so we're in episode we're on episode four here i can just look at the top of the dvd right. here. We, and we've done and we've done two and three so we've actually we haven't done the the, the kirkhoff case we haven't done one we we've done two and three uh and i cannot remember but I have to assume, based on how the truck is presented, that this is the first appearance of Rocky's truck in the series. Yeah, yes, <laughs> yeah. That was my notes too. I'm like, it, it, it was, it was kind of fun because it was this. I don't know why, but I, I suddenly got giddy and excited about it while we were watching it, and Rocky was talking about the truck, mm-hmm. uh, and just the way he was talking about it, absolutely as if Jim had not 
seen the truck or had heard about the truck, but hadn't. Right. Know. Like this was the first introduction of Rocky's truck to Jim. Yeah. And it is at the very least a very new toy to, to, to Rocky. So yeah. So Rocky's not in episode three. Um, so I don't, and the dark and bloody ground. I don't remember. I don't think, I don't think he is either. Um, I mean, I'm, I think I he's in it, but I don't think the truck's in it. I'm going to go ahead and without going back to the tape, assume that this is the first appearance of Rocky's truck, which is amazing. Yes. Yes. Uh, it was, it's, it's kind of fun to, uh, in juxtaposition to the car that Jim just had, right? Like, right, right. So Jim's, this is the fourth vehicle that Jim <laughs> is, is getting into. And, uh, it is a far more capable vehicle of the one that, compared to the one he just had. You know, what really grabs the people the most, those road lights up on top of the roll bar. I don't want to show it in competition, Rocky. I just want to drive it for a couple of hours. And then Jim, Jim says, you know, thanks Rocky. Let me know how much, like, you know, what do I owe you for driving your car or whatever? Yeah. And Rocky says, Oh, just, just, just top off the gas if you could. And then Jim <laughs> looks at the dashboard and goes, you've got dual fuel tanks in this thing. That'll take me 40 gallons. I don't use no regular. No, sir. <laughs> and then Jim says something and there's engine noise covering well, it up. And I, yeah, he goes like, if the cops didn't expect to see me in my car, I would. And then he's like, like cursing out Rocky, but he's revving the engine so that yeah. <laughs> so that it covers over the the dialogue. It's, it's I think this is you know this is a little more contentious relationship about the truck I think than we get later, right? Yeah, but it is very fun to introduce it this way. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. This is they're still finding their feet with the with the series, but this is good. This is good formative material. It does track with um, the episode where, um, oh man, the one that's kind of like the uh, like the medical horror one. Yeah, where it starts yeah. off with Jim getting rear-ended in the truck, yeah. and Rocky is like mad at him <laughs> for like wanting to get out of the hospital or whatever because he he can't be mad at him about hurting his truck even though he is mad at him. About yeah, exactly. Like, there's definitely a thread that goes all the way to that to that stuff that starts <laughs> here, but. Uh, yeah, I, I appreciate that it has four, dual fuel tanks. Uh, it's pretty, <laughs> sounds pretty pretty rocking. Um, so Jim drives Rocky's truck to Nancy's house. There's no answer to the door. He goes in the back, snoops around. We see food out on the kitchen counter, which is always mm -hmm. mysterious. Sidebar: It is much more mysterious to just randomly have fixins for something on your counter if you don't have kids. <laughs> this is something I have <laughs> yeah, learned. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I spend many of my days picking up like one piece of bread and an open can of peanut butter can yeah. an open jar of peanut butter and being like i should probably put these away and then putting them down because i have to go do something else <laughs> do, do you do you have a uh, uh overturned chairs all over the place too like you know what we don't not have overturned chairs <laughs> <laughs> is the visual shortcut for a crime scene the same as having children yeah is basically that, of having having a toddler yes yeah we have like a rocker chair with an ottoman that also rocks. And uh, one of Simone's favorite things is to go rock on the ottoman until it turns over, until she's got enough momentum that it goes up on its side. So she slides off of it and, yeah. then, it, and then it falls over on its top. So <laughs> sometimes I'll go into the living room and I'll just see the upside down ottoman. And nothing else. <laughs> Crime scene or toddler. That would make a great uh, Twitter bot. 
crime scene or toddler. Anyway, back to our show where this mm-hmm. is clearly coded as something has yeah. gone on. Deja vu. And um, Tim again moves through the space. Uh, and sure enough, he sees Nancy's body on the ground. This time we see uh, blood on her forehead and she, he checks. And sure enough, it's another another body. There is a very helpful framed black and white picture on the table of Nancy with our shirtless windbreaker goon, shirtless wearing the same windbreaker. Yeah, <laughs> it's exquisite. Taken day of production so they could have that prop. Sure was put on a shirt. No, well, thank you. I mean, you say that you, you say that, but uh, my brother-in-law is is a, a surfer. He grew up in California. And I think there are a lot of family, like, of course, the windbreaker adds to it. But I think there's a lot of family photos where there's all of us wearing all of our clothing and him just shirtless, just standing. (laughs) (laughs) Like, fair enough. That is just how he's going to look. But yeah, no, I love that touch. That's it's, it's very easy to tell that it's him. Yep. It's, I appreciate it because I sometimes don't can't tell different different faces, and so him having the windbreaker with no shirt really codes it in for me. Yeah, and so Jim, of course, sighs and very reluctantly reaches out to the phone to call the cops. <laughs> as, as is tradition, we go from Jim reluctantly calling the cops to the full cops at the at the scene, mm-hmm. um, with our lieutenant and our sergeant, of course, who have responded. You know, a, a bit of where are you going, et cetera, et cetera. But the the core of the scene here is that they're not going to book Jim now. They don't have enough to, to you know, book him for anything. Like, you're looking awfully good for opportunity, right? And he's like, mm-hmm. you know, what motive? I don't know her, right, et cetera. But this is uh, where we get our, our promised bit from the preview montage. But I want you down at the station tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock. And bring along that good lawyer of yours. You're going to need him. Her. Yeah. But as Jim leaves, we see our shirtless windbreaker goon giving him the stink eye from across the street. And he follows uh, Jim in his Mustang. And we get the bongo-rific action music. Yes. As we get into this scene. So you said that this is the 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 linchpin, the center point of that episode well, for you. Okay, so this is... Um, there's a thing that happens in this. So there's a, a car chase. Jim leads him into a lumber yard. Well, kind of by accident, right? That's one yeah. thing I like. A car with like a trailer leaves a lumber yard and that cuts Jim off. So he swerves into the lumber yard. Yeah. And then, so they're kind of, they, they kind of accidentally go into it, which I, I appreciate that. I think that's a nice touch. And then they, they end up uh, abandoning their vehicles. I think uh, the shirtless dude in the jacket um, does his car get trashed? Is so he, he so he took a couple of shots at Jim, right? Before yeah, they go to the lumberyard. He's packing yeah. heat. So we have that element of danger. And then in the lumberyard, they're cut off by a forklift that's lowering yeah, that's, down a bunch of lumber. So he has to stop. And then Jim gets stuck in a dead end. So he has to stop. So now they're they're out amongst the lumber, running around. Uh, shirtless dude in a jacket has a gun. He's taking shots at Jim. Jim's squirreling around this lumber, trying to keep it on the, uh, you know, 
keep him on the uh, other side of it and figure out what to do. And we'll get to how Jim deals with him in a moment because <laughs> that's fun and that's great. The highlight of this story is uh, Jack Clark, number one. <laughs> uh, so Jack Clark is played by Heath Jobes. This might be a rap on him. Uh, <laughs> yes, uh, this is his only thing in the Rockford Files. Uh, he's known for Beyond the Valley of the Doll, The Borrower, and The Rockford Files. So that should tell you. Oh, come on, he he has 21 acting credits. Come he on. has 21 credits, yeah. Uh I, I'm not here to, to I actually really like him. But what's great about this is that he's a, he works the lumber yard. He hears the shots and he goes to call the police. And it is an enormous amount of business. Yeah. He's he's calling first for the number of the police. I think he actually puts money in to make that call. Yes. And he definitely puts money in to call the police. I, I like by that time I was paying attention and we keep cutting back and forth. While these bongos are playing and we're having this action scene, there's this guy in this phone booth trying to get a hold of the police to let them know what's happening. Down to the point where we get Jack's name. Hey, uh, yes, there's a, there's a shooting at uh, a Kellogg uh, um, Lumberyard. Uh, Jack Clark. Uh, I work at the Lumberyard. I'm an employee here. Yeah, yeah, like, oh, it's so great. I but he's, it. like, nervous and scared. Yeah, it's, you know, we talk a lot about, like, how incidental characters in the Rockford Files often have, like, you feel that they're real, that mm. there's a thing happening. And, like, here's a guy whose only job it is is to do a thing that none of us would have found suspicious, right? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, if the police just showed up with no one calling, there was gunfire. We would have mm-hmm. known. Right. This piece of connective tissue doesn't need to be here, like, yeah. for TV conventions. Like, we wouldn't even question, like, oh, and then the cops yeah. show up. Yeah. And now that I'm saying it, I think I realized that his whole deal is to create even more tension mm-hmm. because Jim might be afraid of the cops showing up at this point because he hasn't mm-hmm. quite solved what's happening. I'm not entirely sure. But anyways, it's just great because he's he is a character. He's not a buffoon or anything. There's like it's not overplayed, mm-hmm. but I do think it's played for humor, and um, I just I just love it. Uh, like I said, it, it it's this great thing to cut to every time you're something happens in the action sequence instead of going just to the next mm-hmm. bit of the action. Yeah, sequence. I mean it's a. It feels like, I mean, it kind of feels like it's a little bit of padding, but like, it's clearly part of the script. Like there's, it's not like it's 80 yard, like no, the camera's on him. We're seeing him do a bunch of stuff. I, I think it's meant to be like a joke, not the kind of joke where you would expect the yakety sex to start playing mm-hmm. or something like that, but just enough of a, in that Rockford style. Yeah, humor. Yeah, yeah. It kind of diffuses the tension a little bit. Yeah. And it also creates some texture in the action scene where maybe I'm just like backfilling right from like looking at this and being like, okay, so they're in the lumber yard, they're running around. How many things can we really do here? Yeah. Right. Once they're out of the cars, like what do we do to keep this interesting? And it's like, instead of adding some more artificial barriers for them to deal with in the running around shooting scene we're cutting back and forth and that's giving us the texture of yeah yeah you know the 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 kind of hit the gas hit the brakes hit the gas hit the brakes to give us that like 
the the actiony part. Um, I love it, and to the point where I feel like my notes are like, are we going to get Jack's backstory? Right. Like, is, <laughs> is he going to start? And then, and then finally, Rockford topples uh, a bunch of lumber on top of a uh, shirtless dude in a jacket, mm-hmm. ending the standoff. The I say standoff, but Rockford didn't have a gun. Right. Ending the the, the threat. Yeah. Uh, he then kind of gets a drop on him since he's buried under a bunch of lumber, uh, grabs his gun. So this is, my note is that he mumbles, for what you did to Nancy, I'm going to kill you, as Jim like, yeah. uses like some random like string to start tying it to, 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 to tie him up. So with that, I'm like, okay, so maybe I mean, this would be a very Rockford thing too, I think. He's just like her boyfriend or something. Yeah. And like he thinks that Jim killed her and now he's going after Jim. Which is kind of true, like, is kind of what's going on. They definitely, uh, it seems that they were involved. Mm-hmm. And it seems that he thinks that Jim is perhaps uh, Saunders' thug. Oh, I, sure. I think that, that, makes that comes out in the dialogue, yeah, yeah. but I can't remember exactly how. Um, so it's a reversal of what, like, a possible thing that I thought was going on before we saw him in the picture with Nancy. So now we have this kind of moment still in the lumberyard before there's cops because <laughs> yeah. they still have to respond to this very long phone call that came. Yeah, in, yeah. Right? <laughs> He's like, I know what's going on. And then Jim lays it out for, for us um, to talking to, 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 to our windbreaker guy. Um, so the story is he's put it together is that Prentice and Nancy, like Prentice was seeing Nancy. Mm-hmm. They were blackmailing Saunders for some reason. Yeah. Saunders killed Prentice. Um, Nancy found him after Jim saw him, but before the cops got there, right? Made it look like a suicide so that she could continue blackmailing Saunders. But now she's been killed for the same reason. And Argoon says that he has nothing to say. And Jim's like, okay, well, we'll wait for the cops. Yeah. And he's like, all right, let's get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> let's go somewhere we can talk. Uh, and so now they're in Jim's, uh, in Rocky's truck, Jim's driving, of course, and in a very, like, in a pattern that I think we've seen most recently from Jim, mm-hmm. our goon says, all right, so there's a lot of money here. Hear me yeah. out. <laughs> <laughs> there's a negotiation over there's how. A good negotiation. Like, yeah. yeah. Like, so he starts at 7525. Jim talks him to 6040. <laughs> he keeps the 60 and uh, he's like, all right. And he spills the story. So. Saunders at this insurance company was selling these big insurance policies on things that they don't insure, like the Brooklyn Bridge. Yes. <laughs> and then instead of sending the policies on to corporate in New York, he's keeping them and then just collecting the premiums uh, for himself. Uh, Prentice Carr was the controller, found out about it in, as that role, rather than doing anything about it, decided to blackmail Saunders to the tune of half a million a year. Mm-hmm. And Jim's like, half a million a year, that is a lot of money. All right, let's go to the cops. <laughs> yeah. You said we had a deal. I lied. We then wrap up that mystery with uh, seeing Saunders. So we're at the station. We see Saunders, the boss, being taken away in handcuffs. So yeah. presumably justice is served. And the chief tells Jim that he should apologize to the, the lieutenant and the sergeant for accusing them of, you know, tampering with evidence or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then those two guys are like, oh, no, it's fine. It's fine. We're square. <laughs> <laughs> and then so they, they leave the chief's office. And then outside, Jim says they should buy him a drink to apologize for the way they treated him. Mm-hmm. 
So I guess we're getting that they, all of that, all the threatening and leaning on him was all just that they were so offended over Jim impugning them in front of their boss, basically. Yeah, right. I think so. And the we're fine bit at the end is because they didn't want the boss to find out that they had been leaning on him so hard. That's what I, that was my read. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, we don't want to talk about this anymore. We're all good. (laughs) Yeah, this is, this is water under the bridge. Mm -hmm. And then we have our final Mills Watson line where he says, come on, let's buy him a drink, then run him out of town. (laughs) And they both take his elbows and he gets this really queasy smile. Yeah. (laughs) And I thought that would be a fine freeze frame ending. Yeah, it felt like it was going to be, but yeah, yeah. We have one more short scene. I guess we don't find out if they have that drink. I kind of feel like yes. <laughs> Jim is maybe uh, didn't want to do that. But we go to the restaurant uh, by Jim's, the sand- Sandcastle. Yeah, or, I think that's right. I always forget what it's called. Or it's the sand-, sand Dollar. Maybe it's the Sand Dollar. It's either the Sandcastle or the Sand Dollar. Yeah, one or the other. One of the things I should know that I just keep forgetting. Anyway, the restaurant at, at, uh, no, at the beach. With Jim and Janet, they clearly have... Well, he seems to have coffee and she seems to have wine. So I guess maybe they had food or maybe they're just chilling. Who knows? Guess she'll be leaving for Tahiti soon, but she has some commitments first. She's going to fill in for someone at the at the clinic uh, for a month while they're on their honeymoon. So this scene is kind of kind of calling back to to Jim saying that he wants to believe in her, like being good, like doing good works and like Mm -hmm. being a good person, but he sees her being selfish and doing things for herself. Right. And so this is kind of the, the reversal here where she's like, well, I want to go to Tahiti. That's my goal. I'm going to do it. But first I'm going to keep volunteering. If I'm going to be there for a month, I might as well stay through the end of the semester, but I am going to Tahiti. And she (laughs) takes her hand and smiles and says, sure you are. Let's talk about it tomorrow. And we cut from them holding hands and smiling at each other to our end credits. The fun episode. I was just looking up the name of this restaurant. Uh, and uh, the restaurant is also appears in a Columbo episode Probably. and a Murder, She Wrote episode. <laughs> so all sounds right. Uh, but I can't see the, I can't see the actual name of it. I will say when I first typed it into Google, I said restaurant near gym as if Google would know. <laughs> and did it? Uh, it did not. I had to put Rockford there. I know it's come up in other episodes. I just don't yeah. remember. Um, I think for some reason, sand dollar makes it is, is the one that I'm thinking of. But anyways, that's neither here nor there. I'm disappointed that we didn't get Jack's backstory, but otherwise. Right. And also we did not in fact get a Beth appearance. Yeah. No Beth appearance. And, and, I, you know, with it being the fourth, Beth has definitely shown up already. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, because she was in, I mean, the second episode is the 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 one where she hires Jim, like establishing Beth, hires Jim. They to, have a, yeah. Yeah. Um, the dark and bloody ground. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. It was a good episode to come back from a break on. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a very yeah. solid Rockford Files. It's fun seeing the early uh Early ones, mm-hmm. uh, since we we spent so much time, uh, I guess, sort of in the mid range is where most of our 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 viewing has been. But <laughs> I mean, you know, just going by numbers, the early ones being the first season—that's one yeah. fifth of the total episodes. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I I felt like it was a good. I I agree that it felt like a good one to come back on. Um, good kind of foundational like. 
all the solid Rockford stuff, the story. So the, I think the thing, I think I was saying like kind of the, the Huggins-ness of like having a weird little hook for yeah. the plot of being like selling insurance on something. Right. And collecting the premium. Like that feels like a very <laughs> yeah. Huggins-y seed for, for the idea. Yeah. It, it definitely follows the, the mystery format. It's not like a complicated mystery, but like mm-hmm. we stick with Jim's point of view through the entire thing. Right. We only know what yeah. Jim knows for, for, for most of it. We follow him as he unfolds, you know, follows the clues and, and, and figures out what's going on. I was skimming the IMDb reviews and one of them says, some, says something like, you know, it's an early episode. So we don't really see Jim's uh, like he has yet to develop the like sarcasm of the character. And I was like, it's not like he's not sarcastic, but I was like, you know what? I think that's actually kind of an accurate read. OK, there are some moments where he probably could have been more cutting or been more, I don't know, more yeah. um, used language that was more colorful, mm-hmm. right? Like some of that stuff. I mean, there were some lines that, you know, yeah. stood out as very Rockfordy lines, but there are some kind of nuances to the character that have yet to really settle in, I think. Right, right. Um, like the broad strokes are clearly all there, but there's a little bit of... Mm, there's There's just like a little bit of colorfulness that isn't that that will come a little more over yeah, the course of the seasons. Yeah. This sounds like a, I don't know, I can't think of a better way to describe it. And it sounds like a negative, but it's not. It's just a descriptive, which is a little bland. Like there's a little bit of genericism, I think. Sure. Uh, like the, like this could have been popped into like another TV detectives yeah. thing. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't necessarily disagree. I think that there's... Um, they're the kernels of a lot of the rock traditionists. Uh, like the the way he treats Janet, I think, is mm-hmm. very like in line with later on how he's going to to deal with things. Mm-hmm. And and the stuff with him and the cops uh, mm-hmm. definitely played into the. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I could definitely I can see that. One of the things I really liked about this episode was the way it didn't. Um, so we don't know even who the list of suspects are <laughs> in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it sort of does this thing where like the beginning part is it's probably these cops. We don't know why the cops are doing it, mm-hmm. but they seem like, and then that drops away and we're like, well, you know, is it, is it Janet or mm-hmm. is it this Nancy person? And it's some like weird, he was cheating on someone or, you know, like, you know, whatever. Yeah. Which is great because like, Early on, the exchange between Jim and Saunders straight up tells you that Saunders is the bad guy. Like, <laughs> he doesn't come out and say it, but he's just very, like, is he, when we were, uh, I didn't make any notes about it when I watched it, but when we were going over it in this episode, I was like, wow, this whole exchange is very suspicious. Like, this guy, <laughs> especially when he's like, oh, I, I believe that it was a suicide. Like, just very, like, <laughs> and you should, too. Even though, like, again, it's a very non-believable suicide. Like, who, mm-hmm. who's going to shoot themselves in the gut? You know, like, that's... Right. And, like, why? Like, there's no particular reason no one is yeah. like, oh, he lost a bunch of money or, yeah. you know, something. Like, it's just like, oh, what what a weird thing to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, it, it was kind of nice having, like, these... Without 
it being very explicit, mm-hmm. there are these different segments of who the guilty party might be, and then yeah, we yeah. moved on. To the yeah, the one. structure, the the structure of kind of like, like I said, that like the pacing of yeah. Here's a thing to to consider. Here's a person to consider. Here's a person to consider. It's very uh, rhythmic and really like keeps it moving along and keeps you kind of like guessing in the sense of like, where is this going to go? It's not really yeah. done it like which one of these people did it, but more like what is Jim going to discover next? And how is that going to clarify or complicate what we already know? I guess what I was saying, it wasn't so much, not so much of a criticism as the episode, but more like just trying to tease out what makes this feel like what makes an early season episode feel early season. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's a strong contrast to the last episode that we did, which if you remember, (laughs) was like three months ago. But um, uh, uh, the deuce, uh, the last, you know, which had, again, Mills Watson in a memorable role, but how a lot of that one we talked about how the plot was kind of like the plot was kind of by the wayside and the fun of the episode was just like watching Rockford talk to people. Yeah. It's like be the character. Yeah. Yeah. With other characters, you know, and that's a, a, a season five episode. So then the season one episode, the joy is really watching Jim be an investigator and yeah. do the PI things. And he has his character moments, but like we're watching the story unfold and we're invested in finding out what he finds out and seeing where it goes. We commented on how a, a significant portion, uh, not the majority of it, but like a more than normal portion of this mm-hmm. episode was just watching Jim at work mm-hmm. without hearing anybody talking or anything like that, Like, a, uh, which is uh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah, like I have about uh, a page less of notes than I do on average just yeah. because there's less talking. Uh, but not because it's any less complicated or anything. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate that early bind he puts himself in. I think, like yeah. I said, that's really elegant writing to like put him in that position where now he has to make a real decision about whether he exposes that he was there first or not. Um, and then the balancing act of like who he suspects and why. And this one has a little bit of the like, well, if like if Janet had just told him the whole thing at the beginning, he might trust her more. Mm-hmm. but it wouldn't actually change that much about the story, but you need something else after that to, to get the story to the next phase, right? Like right. the first half of the episode, the tension and the drama is in the like, so is Janet involved or is she not? And then once that's resolved, you get into the, the liquor ticket and then, you know, all the, the investigation and the things he finds out. So if she just told him everything up front, you need something else in that middle space. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of like that I walk that line of you know, who does he believe? Who does he not believe? Why does he believe them? Why does he not believe them? And how we learn about their backstory and stuff. So that's all good, good, efficient, compelling you know, <laughs> yeah. writing, yeah. like all that good stuff that we was the reason we started talking about this show for a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Comes around full circle. Yeah. But I guess, again, just in contrast to the later season episodes that are more like the character and more yeah. like just watching, like having fun with our friends, which some of those later season episodes are. Yeah, like the the uncharitable way to describe both sides of that is, uh, uh, you know, in the early time, they lack the full character. And in the later time, they, they don't. Uh, they just rely on the characters being fun. Right? Mm-hmm. And I like, I don't think either one of those are good criticisms 
but they are there's a certain truth in on both sides of there's a pendulum that swings with like yeah both how well the audience knows the character but also how well the 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 cast and crew are settled into their world yeah right yeah yeah well uh good one to come back to Thank you, Mills Watson, for your service. You've yes. uh, you've <laughs> given us four great episodes, four great characters. Any other thoughts on Exit Prentice Carr? I uh, I've never met a Prentice, um, perfectly named character though. <laughs> uh, other than that, no. Um, it was a lot of fun. I I enjoyed myself. Me too. And and one can presume he got paid. Oh yeah, it just it seems she seems. Good for it. Mm-hmm. Before she blows all her money on tickets to Tahiti. Yeah. I'm trying to think exactly if there was like a situation where she might have hired him for only part of it. And then he was kind of forced to solve the mystery because he got stuck in it. But well, I'm sure she paid him. He he Does he get to claim the 40 gallons of gas as an expense yeah. for Rocky's car? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm sure, he'll, I'm sure he will attempt it. But yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah, I think that that about covers it. So thanks again to Mills Watson. Thanks again to Epidiah Ravishal for joining me on this adventure. You're quite welcome. <laughs> um, hopefully we'll have our episodes a little closer together going forward, but you know. Life is life. Life is life. Yeah. Sometimes you get run out of Bay City. It's just how it yeah, goes. Yes, it just happens. <laughs> but with all that in contention, we still will be back next time to talk about another episode of The Rockford Files. <laughs> That's my, those are my bongos. <laughs> <The> bongos. Yeah. <laughs> That's good.